You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Sponsorship for today's podcast episode is from the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partner, Visby Farrier Products. In this next podcast, I speak to Greg Murray, an Australian who I've probably met on and off over the last 20 years. And he talks about how he got into farriery, which of course is a common theme in this podcast, how he went about getting training in Montana and New Mexico in the USA. But he also covered how early on in his career, the loneliness of farriery, and it is often a very lonely craft that we're in, how that made him Uh, want to leave the profession, and he nearly did, but how he regained his enthusiasm and how he got going again. Of course, it's great that he didn't leave the profession because he went on to be head farrier in Hong Kong, and he talks about that and about managing 36 farriers there in Happy Valley, and then moving on to another Asian country in Korea, in South Korea, I should say, and how that was more difficult because it had a very different culture. So we cover quite a lot, and I hope you'll enjoy this podcast. I've just arrived in Brisbane for the Australian Farriers Conference, and I bumped into somebody who I should have expected to see, Uh, but I wasn't, uh, Greg Murray. So we've taken the opportunity to record a podcast. Welcome to my podcast, Greg. Thank you, Simon. So how did you get into horses then, Greg? Born up in central Queensland, and uh, my father was a grazier, so we had uh, livestock out there, and we would muster our sheep, cattle, um, primarily cattle was what I was introduced to, from an early age. Um, How old? I was uh, about eight or nine when I first remember uh, riding my own pony. But from there, we, um, when I was about 12, my parents sold the property and I moved to um, Brisbane where I completed uh, my schooling there. And then from year 10, I, uh, at the end of that, I jumped on a, a bus and went into the Northern Territory and was on cattle stations from the age of 16 through to the mid-20s. So I climbed the ranks up there fairly quickly. I was 19 when I had my own stock camp, as what it was called. I was head stockman. And shoeing was a part of what we did. And it was one thing that I always enjoyed. I always enjoyed shoeing the horses, even though some of the horses were quite rank. But there was a lot of satisfaction I got out of doing it, the end result. So from there, I um, during that period of being up there, I saw an opportunity to go to Montana and did a um, summer course with a guy called Steve Wolf at Montana State University. Then spent another further two months down in Albuquerque with a guy called Claire Thompson. And Claire did primarily all um, Arab show horses and, and gated horses. Um, but I learned a lot out of working with Claire there and how he, one, how he approached horses and did and shot a lot of these fairly highly fractious horses, especially the Arab horses. From there I came back to Australia and um, started my own business. I share farmed actually with my brother in Brisbane, small crop for about 12 months while I got going. And um, 
started the business there. So I had a 14-year practice. There was a mixed practice. But during that time, as I was just saying to you before, Simon, in the off-air, I became quite disillusioned. It's a lonely industry, the, the farrier industry, if that's how you make it. And I decided that I was going to get out of the industry, but I also decided if I was going to leave this industry, I was going to go out on a good note. So with that, I put a lot of time and effort into myself as one as a person, but also into the um, development of my skills and knowledge. And with that, I just never looked back. I forgot all about leaving the industry. I became so passionate. I got involved with the Ferry Association at a, a political level, but also as a um, competitor. I competed around Australia for solidly for 10 years. And, um, and that was probably the beginning of my education, I would say. It, it really cemented this industry in me. And I also had the opportunity to do some training as well as in training people. Um, we had a practice, when I say we because of the apprentices, um, that we would make all our own shoes. There was one, one, one day a week dedicated just to shoemaking and the rest of the week was dedicated to, to going out shoeing the horses. So with, with that, as well as tool making, I did some tool making as well, there was a whole gamut of skills and knowledge which I um, developed and, and, and learned. From there I had an opportunity to go leave Brisbane with my family at the time and um, within a four week period we were packing up and went to a, um, a racing complex in the 2,000 miles away or 2,000 kilometres away in the southern part of Australia called Lindsay Park. Which is about, if I can do that, that's somewhere around 1,200 miles, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so and that, that to me was it was the next step for me as a person. It was the next step for me as a, as a farrier. It took me to having one apprentice to employing up to six people. We had 600 horses that we Well, Lindsay Park's fame spreads all over the world. You know, at that time, it was an extremely famous racing setup, wasn't it? It was. It was, um, you know, Colin Hayes, uh, who set it up, was still alive at the time and I was so privileged. He was just a wonderful man. He was. There aren't many people in my life that you actually um, instantly gain respect for, but he was one um, that that had that persona where you earned his respect. Well, you he gained your respect, and um, and Lindsay Park had the whole gamut right from breeding right through to to racing. So racing itself didn't excite me, but that whole aspect of it, from foal to to, to track, did. So with the team of guys that we had, we... I thought you were going to say from pole to race or Sarah. No, that'd give, I, me the, that'd give me the idea for a title <laughs> for a book. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry to interrupt, go on. So, so, so you're there at Lindsay Park. Yeah, so I had seven years there and it was, it was, a, it was a wonderful experience. And opportunity came about uh, during that time for, for me to go to Hong Kong as the head farrier there. And so I had four years there as um, as head fair as the head farrier there in Hong Kong, um, and and again that was a that was another step up in in my education not only as a person but also as as a farrier which took me into a more managerial role, uh, trying to manage all Chinese farriers uh, who were cemented in their ways, and given the um, charter of and expecting to change their ways. So you were in charge of the racing part, which you know. Obviously, Hong Kong Jockey Club is famous for. 
But up at Bees River, where they have the leisure horses, you're in charge of the shoeing up there as well, were you? That's right. So in total, I had 36 farriers and um, that were under my care. And uh, I, at the racetrack, there was 1,200 horses at any one time. And then in Bees River and the other associated riding schools, there was another 500 horses. So trying to find a balance to manage that, the people, the politics that went with it, it was, it's, it was quite a quite a learning curve and it, it's a very very um, uh, money orientated world in that it's driven by the dollar by having and I don't say this in a negative way that's what the nature of the business is it's a charity the Hong Kong Jockey Club vast amounts of money a bet and every week or every grace meeting um, so it's a real machine and being in that involvement was again a, a very very steep learning curve yeah, and I know it. Um, as you say, it has a charitable aspect. It's a non-profit making organisation that that generates vast profits. Um, but they are used, aren't they? I think hospitals and charities. And I know the big swimming pool there was built by the uh, you know the, the public users um, by the Hong Kong Jockey Club. Yeah. I mean, th- think the other thing about it is people that haven't experienced there, haven't experienced the race day there is that it holds 100,000 people, doesn't it? And, and I'm told that after the first race, there's often 20,000 people leave because they've lost all their money, and there's another 20,000 people waiting to go in. So it's extraordinary, isn't it? There, there's nowhere else like it in the world on that scale. Yeah, it, it is quite phenomenal in, in that there's a generation of people, which I believe there's conflict there now with that in the uh, what they call the football betting. Because a new generation now is betting more on the phone doesn't, and doesn't well, well it's more no yeah so it's more towards the football betting as opposed yeah. to the racing so uh, but that mentality or that um, desire to bet is is quite a thing and then to have the uniqueness of Happy Valley in at that location racing at night amongst the buildings on Hong Kong Island and do they still race on the other track? Yes, Shartin and, Shartin and Happy, and Happy Valley. Valley. So yeah. generally Sundays on um, for Shartin and Wednesday nights for Happy Valley. So yeah. the horses are trucked over on the Wednesday afternoon. The stables there where they're, they're held during the, the course of the afternoon leading up to the races. And there's just procession of trucks going back after each race meeting to take the horses back to Shartin. And, and that's just a holding point during, for the... Um, well, I, I would advise anybody to go to Hong Kong as they travel, because it's an extraordinary experience. What I can't understand is how somebody can live there for six years though, Greg, so... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's quite amazing, that's a, that's a, uh, a story, well, I say a story in itself, but to come from a rural background in Australia and to go to an apartment building, I can still remember waking up the first morning in Hong Kong and, and looking out the window and going, what have I got into? How am I going to survive here? But I quickly adapted, as I had um, going from running your own business, which took up all your time, to having, it was more than a nine to five job, there's no doubt about that, but there was times, once you finished work, where you had opportunity to do things, which got me into cycling, got me into hill running, and um, it opened a, a whole new world for me. So I easily made that change and, and that step over, which I thoroughly loved. Yeah. Actually, the other thing is that, um, you know, Hong Kong is one of the most populous areas on earth. But even in a populated area like that, 
up at Bees River, I can remember standing there and you can't see the city, you can't see anything but hills and mm. forest. It's right very close to, what should we say, the old Chinese border. Mm-hmm. And up there, at least, is very rural, isn't it? it extremely so. And, and most of, you get into the new territories, there, there's just pockets of high-density living. And, and literally, you step across the gutter and you're in the mountains where there's absolutely pristine, untouched virgin forest, bush. So um, it was very easy to get lost up there if you didn't know where you were going. <laughs> well, I know my daughter at 16 went riding in the hills around Hong Kong and uh, a predecessor of yours organised that and she found it uh, extraordinary you know it was it was quite something for her anyway so you so you did your time at Hong Kong and uh, and then you went on to another country um, South Korea why did you go there I got an opportunity to go over there there was um, as a consultant the charter there for me was to or for whoever went there was to try and upgrade the the standard of Ferrari and that was primarily it had come about from the veterinarians, they, and I'm not talking out of school by saying this, but the, the farriers were very resentful of being encouraged to upgrade their skills. It was very unionised, the racing industry there, as in it was controlled by the um, stable hands, it was, and it was controlled by the farriers. So they, the organisation, the KRA, the Korean Racing Authority, were very scared of because they had a very, very strong unionised control and they would stop race meetings if they wanted to. And the vets were scared of them too because they were given a lot of pressure. This is starting to sound like paradise to me. There is a country on earth where the vets and the racing authorities are frightened of the farriers. I can't say it any anymore, <laughs> honestly. It was... And so I ignorant, ignorantly went there. I, I can still remember the day after I arrived that the CEO of the uh, whole organisation had me up there with my interpreter because I had an interpreter with me 24-7 when I was at work. And um, I'm glad you clarified that. Yes. <laughs> yes, he was locked out at times. But, um, and it was very much, yes, we want you to get this done and, and we're right behind you. But... They were hollow words because when it came to it, it um, and not that I was heavy-handed, but I went into my my uh, role with all enthusiasm and spent the first six six months thinking I was going to achieve things, and the next six months starting to doubt that, and then the the following twelve months just realising I was just beating my head against a brick wall. So it was very very frustrating. However, I formed some wonderful relationships with the veterinarians and did some fantastic work with them and set up some other things which are still in place there as well now. So it, it wasn't, if you want to put it, a wasted experience, it was a fantastic experience. The difference, if I want to make a um, comparison between Hong Kong and Korea, was that after British rule, Hong Kong was very easy to deal with, so they were somewhat desensitised, where Korea, Korea's only just coming out of the woodwork, it primarily resents foreigners, as in, they, they want to do it on their own. Well, I, I, I mean, can respect that. It's been dominated by China or Japan, hasn't it, for hundreds of years, so I suppose that's why... Yeah, and when you start to read some of this history, I was 12 months there and then I was reading a book, and it started to make sense in that what had happened to these people over the years, why they have become so protective of who they are, why they resent people coming in. That is um, very, very understandable when you start to look at their history. They've been invaded from all sides 
and they really have copped a hiding over the years. And yeah. now they're going, no, we're our own identity. You know, we can do this. Yeah. And or you know, they they are they're leading the world in so many ways. But there's a portion of that industry where they could relax a bit and just go, yeah, okay, we can have this help. They, I mean, they get they quoted 26 million people to the races every year. Yeah. I've got some stats there that are they're, they're quite mind blowing. Yeah. And to get on and off the train, the train station at, at Guanaxan where um, you get off at a race meeting day, just don't go near there. And it's, you know, just unbelievable the amount of people they can shuttle as well. All right, Greg, let's just take you back. You mentioned that while you're in Hong Kong and you finally had some free time, you got into cycling and marathon running. And because I know, as we know, Facebook uh, reveals a lot of things. Well, we reveal them about ourselves. And I was forever seeing pictures of you on your bike and, uh, and running. And so you got into that. And even that's taken you to other countries, hasn't it? I know you've been to northern China. Yeah, yeah. so a um, good friend of mine who's become a good friend, he's one of the racehorse trainers, South African guy, Tony Millard, and his wife, they're just the loveliest people. And um, Tony and I became quite friends, even though Tony was a, uh, he's a tough trainer and um, he took no prisoners, but that was his business and that's who he was. But Tony used to cycle, he's a very good athlete in himself and uh, he was the one that actually got me onto the bike. And then after about six months of cycling, I said to Tony, I'm getting bored with this. He said, well, let's go and race. So we did. We chose a race in South Africa, it was called the Argus. They cut the entries off at 35,000 and uh, it's a 110 kilometer closed road. And over the years, we'd end up doing that twice. Uh, my first race, I got second out of 712 by one second. So I thought that was, I was quite humbled with that. And um, but we went on to do a couple of more races back there over the, over the years that I was there. And then I did, did other ones in Thailand, etc. So it was a great outlet for me. It was a great opportunity. It was very positive. There was two things that happened to a lot of expats in those countries. They either did something or they sat in a bar and, and got on the drugs. It wasn't a choice for me. So uh, during that time there, an opportunity came up to do a, if you want to call it an ultra marathon, it was 250k stage races through the started out near the Tajikistan border in the Xinjiang province, which is up in the far northwestern China, dominated by the Uyghur people or as a population. And uh, we went from uh, west to east and ended up in the last two days in the Gobi Desert. There was one stage out of the five stages where we did 80k. That was a that was the longest day. And, um, that was a that was a tough day that one. So that's fifty miles for those that still think you know. Okay, yeah. So we did fifty mile. That was for me. It was I did it in thirteen hours, pretty much neat, and uh, ended up there at midnight at the at the end of the stage, and um, and then the final stage, if you want to call it, that was ten kilometres, and that was in a town called Kashgar. It's a very ancient town, and we were running through the mud wall cities. These mud wall buildings had been there for centuries, and on the way through this. I can still re remember this blacksmith making these horseshoes and his little son was there with him and he was actually at the Pritchelling out stage when he did them and they're all in a mule shaped fashion so there were lots of donkeys up there I didn't see any mules but camels so I'm, I'm guessing they were ponies of, of some sort that were there but there was specific running through this um, these alleys as we're doing the last 10 kilometers through this ancient part of Kashgar or Kashi, I think the locals call it. Well, how fast do you run that you can take in all this with the shoemaking? <laughs> that's, uh, 
there was a I met up with three guys I, I went on my own and I met up with three guys through the course of the first stage of the first day one was an Australian lawyer Anthony Wyatt another was a, uh, a Chinese American investor and the other one was Matthew an American um, uh, banker who worked for HSBC these guys were mates in Hong Kong and ironically I should never have caught these guys because they had this thing any downhill any section that was down no matter the gradient they were going to run that was it flat sections uphills they walked I'd made the condition okay I'm going to spend the first two or three hours just warming up I had 10 kilos on my back I thought I'm not going to go out and blow this straight away so I'm just going to warm into it I've got five days of this so I can build up but I came across these guys we got chatting and they graciously asked me well if you want to stick with us you can stick with us and I thought well that's nice yeah let's do this but there's one real you fall behind you're on your own so I had this little camera a little five and a little um, if you want to call it a bum bag which sat out the front camera in it and once a backpack went on in the morning it never came off so if I wanted food or drink everything had to be reachable during the course of the run so we ran and you'd come across something worthy of taking a photograph and if it was a, a running section and you stopped, you had to catch up and you went yeah. and you went. So um, things you learn to look and you see things and you just quickly stop and take a photograph, you know, whether it be a, a couple of doors in a mud building or something that, that tells such a wonderful story. But it wasn't about the running, it was also about the journey of doing it. And that's what it turned out to be. It was a journey in finding myself, which I didn't realise, exploring your your capabilities as an athlete as well as mentally making it through to the end and, and remembering all these things about people that you met on the way even though it might have been a, a smile or a glimpse or a you know just a yeah. recognition that lasted with you and do you still run now no no i need two new knees <laughs> oh well i was gonna <laughs> so i'm still cycling though <laughs> oh well good good i'm glad you're still doing that now so you've returned to australia and whereabouts in Australia did you return to? I initially came back to, to Brisbane, which was where I originated from 20 years ago, yeah. and uh, prior going down south to South Australia. And I stayed there for about two years and started a business again, and then circumstances had it that I went back to actually the same small little farming community and bought another house down there. It's the, and it's turned out it's the original house in the town. It was built in 1858. It's an old stone building. That's about the newest house in my village. Well, it might be, but for where we come from, <laughs> so, so it's uh, it's it's a most gorgeous place, and uh, and I spent a I spent a fair bit of time getting doing that up the old woodwork and um, the gardens, and I get quite a lot of compliments with the, with the gardens. So um, I'm enjoying life down there. As in, I do a reasonable amount of work with the university down there at the Roseworthy Equine section of the university. I do probably two days a week farrier work, I've got some metal work that I do, and I've got another sideline business that I um, am promoting as well. So with, with that, it's um, I've got a wonderful lifestyle in not being committed to that daily routine of getting up, shoeing. But you still need self-discipline, don't you? Of course you if do, you, yeah. You know, that's one thing I've had to learn in, in the last few years, yeah. you know, since I'm not full on shoeing. That was easy, you were booked up and mm. you knew where you had to go, but you know, when you cut down a bit, you still have to be organised and motivated, don't you? Oh, most definitely, yeah. And I think keeping fit, being able to just step into that at any time, 
rather than being fit as in a farrier fit condition, keeping your work easy for you to do is a big thing for me. Well, we're not aerobically fit, are we? Now, you, you, I mean, you puff and blow when you first start the job. You know, you've only got to look at... I love the fact some 18-year-old is puffing and blowing and I'm just trimming. Yeah, but he's, he's, he's using wasted energy. I know, though, I know. Yeah. And, but once you get past that, of course, yeah, I mean, farrier keeps you strong, but it doesn't do a lot for your heart and lungs, does it? No. It doesn't, no. So, so you have to work on that, really, don't you? That's right, and I, and I think that flexibility side of it as well, and being able to easily get under horses and manage horses and manage people who, who are making our job either easier or difficult. Yeah, I think it's a big thing. Now, I often at this point ask my speakers if they speak another language other than English uh, to say something to me. But I know from what you've told me before that already that that um, Chinese and that Korean is slowly but surely disappearing through lack of use. But I wonder if you can say hello to me in Chinese and goodbye to me in Korean. Uh, I've got a blank sign. I've just got a blank. But I'll... Um It'll, it'll come to me. I'm sorry, I, I haven't. I do that. So. I thought, well, I want to. Ni hao, ma. So that uh, ma is a question, and that says, how are you? Okay. It's, uh, I was just saying to Simon a moment ago, for those that are listening to this podcast, that my stepdaughter's auntie, who was Korean, came out not so long ago, and we had a wonderful time for over, over a month where we communicated quite freely and everything came back to me, and it's, it's quite amazing how, oh. how it does, but when you're immersed in it. So... Um, uh, <laughs> I'll move on to another question. Thank you, then, Simon. Yeah. Then at the end of the you've podcast, stu- you can me. say goodbye <laughs> to me in, in Korean. Yeah. All right. So I have a deep philosophical question for you. I'd like to know what the most important thing is that you've learnt during your life. I think to be humble. To be humble and recognise that there's so much to learn and, so, and other people have something to offer. To, and to step back and listen. I think that took me a long time. For me, I'm only speaking for myself, and that you bulldoze your way through life, and you don't, don't often see this until you step back and have a look. And I've got a friend at the moment, um, she's stepped into the farrier world, and she's probably at that point that I see um, where she's got some knowledge and she's very passionate, she can't get enough knowledge, but with the knowledge she's got, she's bulldozing her way through with the limited knowledge. And being able to step back and realise that things aren't all as you see them yourself. Well, I, I'm the worst one for that, Greg, I have to tell you. My whole family never stopped telling me to stop seeing things as black and white, and there are grey areas. Yeah. I like life simple, so I'm afraid I'm a bit of a bulldozer, but I'm gonna take your advice on this. Now, I've interviewed quite a few farriers that have travelled now, but I think you've mentioned four continents. I might have missed one, maybe you've mentioned five, because we've talked about you going to America, you're here in Australia. We haven't even covered that you came to the UK. That's and right, me. yes. You've been Asia. South so, Africa. And South Africa. So that's five continents. And they're all to do with being a farrier. Well, it, obviously you were born there, so, so we can count one of those off, mm. but they're all to do with being a farrier. So what would your advice be to young farriers who want to travel. How do they use this job to, to get them travel and get them experiences such as you have had? There are opportunities out there that, not that I consciously, consciously went looking for any opportunity to travel, but I took an opportunity initially to go to America 
because at that time that was the the best place I could find to go to get educated. And I had some prior knowledge. I can remember looking in a Hoofs and Horse magazine. There was a little article in there, and I had word from a dock inspector up in the Northern Territory who, who had done it some years before. And I managed to write him a letter in those days. We didn't have internet or anything like that. And he graciously replied and we spoke very highly of it. And there was a guy at the time that he was conducting the course, we called Scotty Simpson, but it was Tom Wolfe that when I went there. So I took that and I, I think that opened my mind up, as in I was a very scared, um, shy person when I went. And I think I came back a little different. But the more people you meet, the more people you communicate with outside of your comfort zone, I think broadens your ability to, ability to accept and see opportunities. Um, so for instance, um, Lindsay Park, that came about through hearing of it, which, and I thought, yes, I can do this. I'm ready for this. And I put my name in the hat and I got it. I was scared. I can still remember driving down with my wife and two stepsons at the time. And I was ringing all around the world to look for people. I had one apprentice and 600 horses. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, how are we going to get through this? But things work out. They do. Yeah, I, I put a lot of time into um, educating the guys, but I had to do it careful because there were guys that were well cemented in their approach that I had to be, how do I manage this? How do I get all this work done and get it done to the best of their ability? Not the best of my ability, but the best of their ability. See, I think you've forgotten what the original question was, but I'm going to give you the answer. The reason you got to travel so much is that you're good at your job, you're likeable, and you communicate well. And I think if people do those things, the first thing is to get good at your job, because, you know, the others, the other two <coughs> only get you so far. But on that note, Unless you've remembered how I've to remembered. say goodbye to say in Korean. Yeah. Go on then. Annyeong hee kaeseyo. So that well, means that's the person that's leaving. If you're staying and you're the one that's staying, you say Annyeong hee kaeseyo. Well, we're both leaving now because we've got to get back to this conference. But thank you so much for speaking to me, Greg. Thank it's you, been, Simon. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Pleasure to catch up with you again. Thank Likewise. you. Greg Murray uh, has had a very eventful life. Uh, I know when I spoke to him before the podcast, he didn't think that he had much to tell us. But when you realise, or I realise, despite knowing him relatively well, that he's actually worked as a farrier on five continents on Earth. So he's led a really uh, nomadic life. And he, he gets into how he coped with that life, especially when he went to Hong Kong and as a person brought up in rural Australia, how he was confronted by uh, one of the most densely populated cities on earth, and how he took up cycling. And in the end, uh, Farriery didn't take him to mainland China, but cycling did. And he tells um, some very interesting stories about how he kept fit with cycling and what he saw there. I think the lesson that we ought to take from Greg Murray is how he took so many business opportunities in his life, or, and probably continues to do so, and how he got to see so much of the world. Greg is a really pleasant, humble farrier, and uh, I was glad of the opportunity to interview him for this podcast.
We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.